1: Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, and since 2015, I've had the pleasure of introducing nearly 400 episodes of The Economist Asks, and still so young. This week, however, will be my last on this show. And thank you to all who have, over the years, listened to our conversations with some of the world's greatest thinkers, politicians, artists and business leaders. Looking back, I've travelled from London to St. Petersburg and Berlin, from Shanghai to New York and to the snow-capped peaks of Davos. Alongside my glamorous life, my team and I have pulled together shows from far-flung studios, including a hip-hop hangout in Harlem, a water tower dungeon in Hamburg, and from under a lot of duvets in lockdown, and you've been there all the way. So for this, my final episode, we've dug through the archives and picked out a favourite show from this year, my interview with organisational psychologist Adam Grant. And I asked him how he could learn to disagree better, which I reckon is a fitting tribute to The Economist Asks' quest to engage in the debates we all need to have. We hope you enjoy this episode. Argument is key to human communication. Since the classical Western philosophers tussled in the agoras and forums of ancient Greece and Rome, it's how the foundations of democracy, law and science were agreed on. Debate and dialogue became cornerstones of civilization, and we've continued the great tradition of positing and postulating for centuries. But in an age of polarization on everything from politics to pandemics, there's plenty of opportunity for disagreement.
0: And, and Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking
1: Sorry, about. You ask a question, let him finish. Law, 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 law and order. And to do so loudly. Party is a party of war Democratic criminals who we'll commit crimes. This is The Economist asks. I'm Ann McElvoy and this week we're asking, can we learn to disagree better? My guest is the organizational psychologist Adam Grant. He's professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and author of several best-selling books on success and innovation. He's also host of the Ted podcast Work Life. Grant has spent years studying how to sharpen our argument literacy, and he thinks that somewhere along the way, we've lost not only the art of arguing well, but the ability to disagree productively. Adam Grant, welcome to The Economist Asks.
0: Thank you, Anne. It's great to be here as a psychologist.
1: I'm interested, as we're going to talk about good argument and bad argument and the difference between them. I was about to say only good argument on this show, and you'll say, we'll be the judge of that. But (laughs) why do humans, why do we argue in the first place?
0: I actually think there's a fascinating case to be made that we argue not to win, but to reason. It turns out that we make better arguments when we're disagreeing with other people than we do often when we're thinking for ourselves. And there are at least some evolutionary psychologists who believe that the whole purpose of arguing is to to sharpen our ability to bring logic and evidence to the table, as opposed to just relying on our intuitions and uninformed opinions in our heads.
1: Have you always been interested in argument and as a practitioner? And all of us have arguments of some sort or another varying volumes. Have you always been someone who liked an argument or... Were you more of a conflict avoider until you started to look at this in more detail?
0: I hated arguments growing up. I avoided them. I was taught that it was impolite to disagree, that when I had an argument to make, that I should keep it to myself in many situations. And uh, I felt like my job was to keep the peace. I don't know if it's because my parents got divorced or <laughs> or, or whether I, I have a genetic predisposition toward agreeableness, probably some of both. But I found that it was really holding me back and that my hesitation to disagree meant that I wasn't honest with people around me. It meant that I learned less from the people who disagreed with me. And at some point I, I concluded that it was actually bad manners to avoid an argument because that disrespected our ability to have a thoughtful disagreement. And it also, um, it basically dismissed the fact that I might be able to learn something from you and I decided I was going to overcome it.
1: It's interesting that people have very strong, I don't want to say hard words because it's probably the wrong use of that phrase here, but I remember because my parents always argued about current affairs very vociferously. And the school friend coming over when we were watching a show on the television, a sort of quite famous show in the UK that does that, saying, I'm so sorry, your parents had that huge row. And I was like, no, that's perfectly normal. It's what we do every Thursday night. But (laughs) it did make me realise that the pitch at which people argue and the way in which people argue can land very, very differently. And this can lead to a lot of stress in the workplace, disagreements in the home and between friends. So fundamentally, what do you think makes for a good argument and what makes for less good or even a bad one?
0: Well, my first surprise was when looking at, at research on creative adults. It turns out that they actually grew up in families that had more frequent disagreements.
1: Oh, well, I'm set for life then, I can tell you. I mean, <laughs> I'm definitely in the right job.
0: <laughs> you were clearly raised in the right environment to, to become an original thinker, Anne, but it's clear that these were not knock-down, drag-out fights. They were, you know, kind of friction. They were people coming together to debate and to challenge, but doing it in a way that fostered diversity of thought, as opposed to, you know, silencing the, the person who lost the argument. The research also on child development is pretty clear in, in showing that it's not how often parents argue that matters. It's how constructively they argue. Uh, so your parents can disagree all the time and you're fine as long as they make it clear that they still love each other. And in fact, that people who love each other are supposed to disagree. That's at the heart of a good argument for me that it involves what's often called task conflict as opposed to relationship conflict. So the arguments I was avoiding were about relationship conflict, which is the, the personal, emotional, I hate your guts and I wish you didn't exist <laughs> right? at, at the extreme.
1: That, that doesn't sound uh, particularly productive. Not healthy. But let's kind of tease that apart if we we could, because your book's called Think Again. And you put forward the case that people should question their opinions in order to open someone else's mind as well as their their own. But what leads you to believe that people fundamentally need to rethink their convictions, their assumptions and learn to, to argue better? I mean, why is that kind of approach better than one in which disagreement is rare or smoothed over. I mean, people might think it's a bit counterintuitive.
0: I think it is for some people. The thing to remember is that if two people never disagree, it means at least one of them is not thinking critically or speaking candidly. And that means both of them are failing to learn from the exchange that might happen between them. I think a lot of us are taught to argue to win. I think what we ought to be doing is arguing to learn. And the problem is that when a lot of people come into a a debate or a disagreement, they lock into preacher or prosecutor mode. So in preacher mode, I'm basically proselytizing my views. In prosecutor mode, I'm attacking your views. And in both cases, I've already concluded that I'm right and you're wrong, which In some cases, it will lead you to withdraw altogether and disengage from the disagreement. In other cases, when I go into prosecutor mode, you bring your best defense attorney to court, right? And then we just butt heads and neither of us is willing to change our mind. And I've been studying this for the past few years. And I've I've found that if you can signal a little bit of humility and curiosity, I'll tell you how I do this personally. If we're going to disagree, I would start by saying, you know, Anne, I can be the world's most annoying prosecuting attorney. I've even been called a logic bully, which... I only learned later was not a compliment. and I'm, I'm trying not to be that person anymore. If you catch me doing that, please call me out. And people do give the feedback, which is helpful. But also it invites the other person to be more humble too and say, I could actually be the most stubborn person on earth and I don't want to be like that either. So let me know if, if you see that happening. And, and we've both entered the argument with a commitment to openness, which is good for both of our growth.
1: So how should we be approaching an argument with someone who holds the opposite view? I mean, you talk about a prosecutor, their prosecutorial approach. And I think journalists who do this kind of interview shows are well aware of that. You almost feel you you could see the sort of bone in sight. You want to hang on like a dog with the bone. But you also then say that there is a mode which you call the preacher, So just distinguish, if you could, between the the preacher, the prosecutor, and then I think your third category is the politicians. Oh, the poor old politicians, but we'll come (laughs) to them in a moment. Tell, Tell me about this taxonomy a bit more.
0: This is fascinating to me as an organizational psychologist because I have never worked in any of these jobs. Yet, I've caught myself slipping into each of these mindsets. So we've talked about the prosecutor mode. In preacher mode, you're basically serving your own intellectual Kool-Aid, right? And assuming that if everyone thought just like you, the world would be a better place. But great minds do not think alike. They challenge each other to think again. And I think getting out of preacher mode and recognizing you know, sometimes the harder I work to sell my own ideas, the more I convince myself, but the more I alienate you is probably something we should take into account. In politician mode, you don't even bother to listen to people unless you already agree with their views or they've already you know, expressed approval for yours. You're catering to your constituents. You're trying to, to basically appeal to your existing tribe. And that's even worse in some ways than preaching and prosecuting, because instead of saying I'm right and you're wrong, you've concluded we're right. And they're wrong.
1: That's the point in which I would have a bit of a, a challenge as a political journalist, because I can understand Bring it on. <laughs> here we go. I can understand why you say that, given the way that politics, particularly in the US, but in, in some other places as well, has, has developed negatively in the last few years with politicians playing to a particular base to get over a certain line to get where they want to be. But generally speaking, they still need to appeal to some voters who don't agree with them. That's why we talk about swings, isn't it, and swing voters. And if they didn't do that, then they would struggle. So the big political breakthroughs, whether they've been left or right, and whether we have a high opinion of them or a low one, would be, for instance, people becoming Reagan Democrats or people voting for Bill Clinton in 1992, but putting the economy, typically, at least at that point, a subject where Republicans often held sway, at the heart of his debate. Or indeed, you might say Joe Biden now trying to figure out how to bring back those working class voters or those who felt alienated and voted for Trump. So I'm not sure the politicians are only preaching to the choir.
0: I think that's a good point. And I'm open to rethinking my definition of how people think like politicians. So it's probably issue specific, right? So in the data I've gathered. There are cases where when you're in politician mode, you basically lock yourself in an echo chamber and you don't want to hear or address alternate perspectives at all. But I think you're describing another flavor of thinking like a politician, which is basically being approval seeking to the point that you run the risk of flip-flopping. I worry a lot about the disingenuousness of that behavior because you haven't actually changed your mind. You're just in many cases, claiming to hold a different stance in order to appease a new audience. And I think there's a big difference between flip-flopping and learning. Flip-flopping is I'm going to change what I say, but not what I think deep down. Learning is recognizing I have evolved my views based on better reasons or stronger data. Let's take the greatest American president by consensus, Lincoln. If Lincoln were alive today, Anne, he would be accused of flip-flopping. Constantly, he would be called a hypocrite because he came into the White House insisting that he was not going to abolish slavery because he was afraid that it would tear the union apart. And he thought preserving the American experiment and maintaining this democracy was even more important than trying to to eliminate this abhorrent practice of slavery. And how lucky are we that he changed his mind?
1: Why would you say that now particularly is the time for a rethink about the way that we make arguments. Some of these things sound like eternal truths. We sometimes put them into different ways of describing them or have different preoccupations and aversions. But you seem to feel some urgency about this moment, and I wondered what led you to that.
0: Part of the issue is polarization has expanded from all the evidence I've seen. People are more extreme and more entrenched now about their political views than they were Anytime time in the last few decades from the data that I've seen in the US and the UK, there's a perception gap where liberals and conservatives are clinging to caricatures of the other side that are not rooted in reality but are clearly consistent with what in psychology is called binary bias where i take a complex spectrum of people and attitudes and i oversimplify them and i dumb them down into two categories and so the people who agree with me are smart and right and the people who disagree are stupid and wrong and i think that's really interfering with progress
1: and you wrote recently about one of the most widely debated and bitterly argued topics in america at the moment that's roe v wade and you describe how liberals and conservatives lose their grasp for critical thinking when an issue strikes such an emotional or a personal chord. What is it about emotive arguments that makes people lose critical thinking or it to blur into perhaps a tendency to believe their own biases and not sort them out from just something that they prefer or where the other side might have a point?
0: Well, there are a few things that can go wrong. Our reasoning is lazy, but it's selectively lazy. So empirically, there's good evidence that we're much more skeptical of other people's arguments than we are of our own, to the point where if you make an argument and then later I present it back to you, but you've forgotten that you were the one who made it, over half of people will reject their own argument when they think someone else has made it because they're holding the argument now to higher standards of rigor. When we're emotionally charged, we choose the easiest arguments to make, and we accept them at face value, even when we might not if somebody else were, were pitching them. There's also good evidence to suggest that when an issue is core to our identity, so let's say, for example, you're somebody who believes strongly in abortion rights, when Roe v. Wade gets overturned, that's a, a threat to your core beliefs and values. Neuroscientists have found that when your core ideas, identities, ideologies are attacked, you actually respond to that in similar ways to physical pain. So it feels like you're being punched in the mind and you immediately put your guard up, which then leads you to choose the the most available defenses instead of perhaps ultimately the most compelling ones.
1: I think Roe is a very interesting case because it did make me wonder if something is so critical to a person's Well being, or indeed just their sense of what is right, what's right for the country. Why would it not be okay to be actually quite difficult, even a bit ornery in terms of your own beliefs? Why would you particularly want to take on the other side's advantages? Because it's a fight and it's a fight that matters. So I I wondered, in a way, whether we're beginning to step around the fact that some people just believe something is really right and I should fight for it, or something is really wrong and I should fight against it.
0: Well, I think for two reasons, at least. One is that there's a risk of winning the battle and losing the war, that you might succeed on this issue and then alienate people or undermine your ability to keep having good disagreements on other issues because they just conclude that you're unreasonable. I think the second risk, though, is that very few people's beliefs are as simple as they might let on when they frame this as a win-lose fight. So abortion is a good example. If you really push people on this, you will find that the vast majority of people believe that there are times when abortion is the only moral option, and there are times when they consider it a completely immoral option. And that's true across the, the political spectrum. So let's take some preposterous extreme examples. No one in their right mind would say that a woman should have the right to abort A healthy baby at 38 weeks. Everybody considers that objectionable. At the same time, there are very few people in their right mind who would agree with the reverse extreme and who would say it's okay to deny a mother an abortion for a baby that's not viable when the mother's life is in jeopardy. And so if we start there, we realize that there is no such thing as purely pro-choice or purely pro-life and that most people believe in both the sanctity of human life and the right to bodily autonomy. And the challenge is, where do you draw the line on trying to reconcile those two values?
1: I get that, though. I think you still end up with a dividing line. So I suppose, are you saying that you don't resolve the problem, but that you hope to address the way of talking about the problem?
0: Yes. Maybe I'll throw out a couple of ways of doing that that are backed by good data. So one is uh, some experiments that Tim Kundrow and I have run recently with people on opposite extremes of the abortion debate we ask them to evaluate an essay written by the other side. In the control group, when people just come in and and evaluate that essay, they're pretty nasty. You know, they call each other woman oppressors and baby killers. So then we say, well, what what if we have them take each other's perspectives? And guess what? It doesn't work because the perspective is so unimaginable, either offensive or foreign or both, that people just end up creating a ridiculous view of the other side. What we found is much more effective is to say, instead of imagining the other person's perspective, I want you to consider how you might feel differently about this issue if your life circumstances had unfolded differently. And we find that when people engage in that counterfactual thinking, when they realize, wow, if I had grown up in a different era or a different family, I might have different beliefs— they're less likely to demonize the other side. They're more likely to recognize that the other side has some legitimate points. And they're in a better position then to identify some common ground, if not fully agree.
1: There's a breed of politicians who are powerful communicators in different ways, perhaps not exactly following the advice that that you've provided. I'm thinking of Donald Trump, Viktor Orban in, in Hungary to an extent, also Vladimir Putin and the way that he controls and distorts messages. None of them are particularly brilliant debaters or orators, or at least not in the traditional sense, but their words do resonate with people, even if they sow division as they go. Where do you think the claims of reasoned argument then stand when you have political debates, which the other side, if you like, is bringing a sword to the party and you're bringing something that's, a you know, you don't want to say a baguette, but you might think, oh my goodness, this is all very reasonable, but how is it going to stand up to these forces of unreason? where they appear to be so attractive?
0: Oh, that's a hard question. Let me say a couple things on that. Tell me what you think. My first thought is, I don't believe that the pen is always mightier than the sword, but I do think the ink lasts longer. The autocrats of the world are effective in the short to medium term in many situations. And I guess the appeal of populism is they are preaching to their choir. But we've seen that this preaching also brings out a lot of prosecutors. There's a reason that that Donald Trump failed to win re-election. And I think if he were better at, at reasoned argument, it's very possible he wouldn't have alienated some of his supporters from his first election. And I think in the long run, we should give people credit for their ability to, to learn and change. We saw that actually in the election of Donald Trump. Look at the number of Obama voters who then cast a vote for Trump, right? That's a a pretty radical change in both the kind of of so-called leader that you prefer and also the sorts of policies that you support. And I think that over time, many people do revisit their views. They don't often do it when we want. They don't often do it in the direction we hope. But people do have the capacity and the motivation to change their mind.
1: Probably seeing as you asked, you know, what I made of that, and I spent a lot of my early working life working in dictatorships or near as damn it dictatorships, particularly under communism, but also the beginnings of some nationalisms in Eastern Europe. And I think you're right that usually I would have said, probably like you, hang on in there. <laughs> you know, this, I like your idea that the, the ink lasts longer. But there is a complicating factor, isn't there? And it's certainly come on in my working life, which is that online discourse and social media disputes are so much more heated and burrow people further and further into the corners of their own argument. we, We all know, even in our own conversations, that something like Twitter can turn shouty very fast, and that's before you get to the darker recesses of social media. So I just wondered if that was a bit of a challenge to your view that eventually, if you like, the truth or the better argument would out.
0: I think it's a fair challenge, and I'm sort of of two minds about it. One is to say, I think you're right. And I think that the task has gotten harder over time. The other is to say, let's not overgeneralize from a few bad social media actors and debates. So there was a a series of studies published last year. This is eight studies over 8,000 people showing that it's not necessarily the case that the internet turns people into trolls. It actually makes their trolling more apparent Uh, So there's a a subset of people who are assholes online, and it turns out they are also assholes offline. The difference is that when you're an asshole in the public square, when you're a troll in face-to-face interaction, usually only a few people see it, whereas on the internet it gets amplified. And so you have this group of trolls who's figured out that they can use aggression to get attention. And if we feed them and we respond with outrage, it only reinforces their strategy. And I think in many cases, it's better to ignore the trolls than to feed them. And if you do that, one of the things you start to notice is that the vast majority of people on the internet are not having nasty arguments, are not spewing hate and vitriol. That behavior is, is perpetrated by a loud minority. The two extremes are often feeding each other. Empirically, Less than 10% of people even want to have a political debate on Twitter. The dominant preference online is actually to have a thoughtful discussion, um, not to have a nasty one. And we shouldn't let the the visible people who choose the nasty ones dominate the information space.
1: I want to move us on to the return to work and the impact of the pandemic, also on the way that we think about work and conflicts in the workspace, but more generally about our jobs. But before we do, my producer, who has a wicked sense of humor, I have to tell you, says, I could ask you how we're both coming across in this conversation. Preacher, prosecutor, politician. No holds barred. How are we doing, Adam, in uh, arguing?
0: I don't know. I I don't feel like you have fit into any of those categories. I think you're engaging like a good journalist or, dare I say, even a scientist. You're challenging some of my arguments thoughtfully and respectfully uh, you're pushing me to think again. I think sometimes I'm doing that. And in other cases, I'm trying to encourage you to think again. What do you think?
1: Well, I would say if I've gotten awareness, I would say like a lot of journalists who ask questions and make arguments for a living, I think I can be a bit prosecutorial. So I just wondered how that
0: was coming across. I don't perceive it as prosecutorial because you're challenging to enrich the discussion, right? Not to, to prove your case uh, or try to win. That creates a very different reaction in me. I don't feel like I have to defend my ideas. I feel like the point of this conversation is to explore ideas.
1: Adam, you're welcome on the show anytime. We might just put you on every week.
0: (laughs) We'll try not to make you regret that.
1: You wrote a column for The Economist a couple of years ago saying that the legacy of the pandemic could be more work satisfaction, more ethical leadership in the workplace, and a deeper sense of trust. Do you think any of that has really come to pass a couple of years on?
0: I should say, I I, I was asked to write this article in the spring of 2020 and I did it with some trepidation knowing that predicting the future is so hard that there's an old joke that historians don't even predict the past with much accuracy.
1: It's been quite an eventful two years, one should say that as well. There are sometimes two-year periods where very little appears to, to change, but this has not been one of them.
0: This was a longer term prediction. What we were starting to see in the early days of the pandemic was that Leaders were finally waking up to realize that you don't get quality work if your people don't have quality of life. That burning someone out on the job was a short-sighted strategy because you were ultimately going to lose your best people. We've seen that prediction come true in the sense that the great resignation has been driven by people fleeing from toxic cultures and saying, I live in a world where there's enough freedom and flexibility now that I do not want to tolerate disrespect, abuse, exclusion, unethical behavior, or selfish taking when I think an organization should be built around generous and fair behavior. The other thing that's intriguing to me about this set of predictions is I didn't really account for the possibility of backslide. So are, are leaders going to change their mindsets, or are they going to return to business as usual? And I think we've seen a, a mix on on that front. We're still seeing leaders who are trying to drag their employees back to the office full-time, ignoring the fact that in many of the, the studies so far, people have been just as productive when working fully remote or hybrid. I worry a little bit that either there's some unlearning going on or that the learning never happened in the first place. But I think the majority of the effects on the way that leaders have taken well-being and mental health seriously at work have been positive.
1: You talked about something that struck a chord in a piece that you wrote for the New York times a little while ago that went viral and it was about languishing, that sense of stagnation or emptiness. And you dubbed it the middle child of mental health, i.e. a phenomenon which gets neglected or doesn't sort of show up if we're looking for doing well in one category or feeling depressed or anxious in another. But I still was a bit confused about the difference between languishing and mild to moderate depression. Is it possible to pinpoint what a sense of languishing is and particularly as you've now had a chance to perhaps look at it more across time or test the reactions to what you were writing then.
0: There are about two decades of data on languishing now that have been gathered by mostly sociologists and psychologists. Some people would say the difference between languishing and mild depression is just a matter of degree. That mild depression is a little bit more severe and you start to feel a little bit hopeless. Whereas languishing is you know, more just emptiness, stagnation, ennui, it's not the presence of mental illness, it's just the absence of, of peak mental health. And so you're a little bit shorter on joy, maybe you're lacking motivation or you're struggling to concentrate, but you don't feel down, you're just not up. There's a case to be made though, that these are different in kind, not just in degree. The presence of mental illness symptoms is very different from the absence of maybe signs of flourishing. Mild depression would typically be characterized by real difficulties functioning. Whereas in languishing, you can get by, and oftentimes you don't even realize you're languishing. You become indifferent to your own sense of indifference. I think one of the reasons we need to pay attention to that is languishing turns out to be a risk factor for later mental illness. It's the people who are languishing today, not the people who are depressed today, that are actually empirically at the greatest risk for depression or anxiety in the next decade or so. I guess it is a neglected middle child because it's neglected by the person who's feeling it in many cases. And that means that if you don't know that you're languishing, you're probably not going to seek help and you may not even do anything to help yourself.
1: And were you sure then what the route to help should look like?
0: Yeah, I think languishing is tricky because it's not necessarily a state that you would seek help directly for or even one that a therapist would always be trained or qualified to treat. It's not a diagnosable medical condition. I think the research on languishing suggests that there are a few ways of overcoming it and the psychology of resilience maybe gives us a few others as well. So People seem to avoid languishing when they have a sense of mastery, mindfulness, and mattering. Mastery not always being big triumphs, but just small wins, a sense of progress, which is the, the strongest known predictor of daily joy at work. Mindfulness, concentrating on a single thing. Right, as opposed to constantly being interrupted and distracted, which is necessary for those moments of progress and mastery. And then, mattering what we were talking about before, knowing that your work benefits other people, or your actions as a parent, or as a volunteer, or contributing to the lives and well being of others. Those are all missing ingredients for people when they're languishing. Maybe this is why sourdough baking was so popular in the early days of the pandemic, right? Is you were able to get the, that little jolt of mastery. I, I baked a loaf of bread. It required mindfulness because if you took your eyes off of the oven. You were about to deal with with a charred burning wreck. And it also contributes to the sense of mattering that I can create something to share with my family or my neighbors or my friends. One of the mistakes a lot of people made during the pandemic is they said, well, I don't know what to do. I've never lived through a pandemic before. And it is true, unless you're 103 years old, you probably have not lived through one. And even then, you wouldn't remember it very well. But you have languished before. You have burned out, you've felt loneliness, you've experienced grief. And one of the best things you can do is learn lessons from your own past resilience. To think about when was the last time that you were languishing or burned out? What was your last bout of grief or loneliness? And ask, what is it that got me through it? And you will generally find there are insights to be gleaned there. If you're having trouble getting those, one of the things you can do is find someone else who's in a similar mental zone. Find a friend who's languishing or a family member who's burned out or a colleague who's grieving and give them some advice for how to navigate it. And you will generally find that the advice you give to others is the advice that you needed to take for yourself.
1: You mentioned some competences in the pandemic that might have helped us get through it and maybe set us off on some different tracks and approaches to satisfaction, one of them being sourdough baking. I think mine is best forgotten. (laughs) It It was quite eclipsed by my mixologist skills, which came on a lot at the quarantini hour. But you have some really interesting skills in your back pocket, Adam. Before you were an organizational psychologist and professor, you had a career as a magician and as a junior Olympic springboard diver, which is quite the mix. What lessons did you take from those disciplines that you think might help us today?
0: I think magic taught me the importance of the element of surprise. That if I told you exactly what trick I was going to do, you'd often say, eh, but if I used a little bit of misdirection and and set a, an expectation that, that I would then break, you were much more curious and excited. And I've, I've tried to do that in communicating ideas. I think diving, the biggest takeaway came from my coach, Eric Best. I was afraid of heights and I was terrified of getting lost in midair and, and then crashing all over the pool. And so I would just sit there shaking at the end of the board, afraid to try a new dive. And I remember one particular day, I was was standing on a three-meter springboard, and I was supposed to do a a front two and a half with a full twist, two somersaults, a 360-degree rotation, and then a dive at the end. I stood there for what must have been 15 or 20 minutes, and my teammates were getting annoyed, and I was getting frustrated with myself. And Eric said, Adam, are you going to do this dive? And I said, ever? Like, of course I'm going to do this dive. It's a major goal of mine. And he said, well, what are you waiting for? And I have heard his voice in my head every time. I've been nervous. I've been hesitant to take on a challenge. I've been afraid to step out of my comfort zone. I ask myself, are you going to do this one day? And then the answer is yes. And then the next question is, what am I waiting for?
1: Adam Grant, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this, the final episode of The Economist Asks. My producer is Alicia Burrell. The bookings producer is Melanie Starling-Condon. And the executive producer is Hannah Marino. And for one last time, I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist.
0: Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups.